The year is 1942, and Alice Porter is doing what most 16-year-old girls do. She's hanging out with her friends. It's a cool evening in April, and Alice and her friends are at Central High School in Pueblo, Colorado, registering for a home nursing class. This group of chatty friends were usually seen together, and Margaret Driscoll and Eileen Muhick were constant companions. The trio left the high school at around 9 p.m. and boarded a streetcar to head to Margaret's house. Margaret invited Alice and Eileen in for snacks, but Alice declined, saying that she needed to go home because her mother was at home alone. So Alice walked off into the cool evening air, and her friends thought nothing of their day. Until later that evening, it would seem just like any other day, hanging out with each other and having fun. Around the same time on this evening, across town, the wife of 26-year-old Donald Fern was in labor with their second child. One can imagine what might have been going through Donald's mind as he sat waiting for his wife to give birth, but I guarantee you guys, whatever you could come up with that he was thinking about, he was miles away. He stood up, and he left the hospital, and he got into his car. He turned the engine on, and he made his way out of the hospital parking lot and drove down the road, where he would eventually cross paths with Alice Porter as she walked home. My name is Laura, and this is Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. Minutes after Alice left her two friends behind at Margaret's house, Mr. and Mrs. McKinney heard a girl scream outside. They knew from the scream that it wasn't a joke and it wasn't playful. It was a girl who was fearing for her life. They rushed to their front door just in time to see a blue-colored sedan driving down the street. As midnight came and went on the 1600 block of East 11th Street, Alice's parents were getting worried. Alice was not home. Marvin Porter was a former policeman, and his mind was racing with possibilities as he notified police that his daughter was missing. The police began their search of the neighborhood, and they came to the house of Mr. and Mrs. McKinney eventually, who let them know what they had seen and what they had heard. And so at this point, everything for the Porters was about to come completely crumbling down. There was no sign of Alice anywhere. Friends of the family, neighbors, and more than 25 local Boy Scouts joined in the search through the east side of Pueblo that night, stretching out into the prairie north of Pueblo. There was absolutely no trace. The police arrested two men in town, one with prior run-ins with the law, and eventually determined that neither of them were involved in the abduction of Alice Porter. As the search intensified into the night, And as Donald Fern's wife across town gave birth, Boyd Whaley, the owner of Whaley's Garage, was busy towing Donald Fern's sedan out of the mud at an abandoned farm located 25 miles southeast of Pueblo. Boyd thought Donald was acting strangely, but he pushed it into the back of his mind and sent Donald Fern on his way. Shifts of police officers combed the streets and prairie for several days, 
and people from the sheriff's office, the DA's office, members of the Civil Air Patrol, an FBI agent, Alice's friends and family, Pueblo Safety Men's Council, and the Emergency Corps of the Pueblo Civilian Defense Council, all the local Boy Scouts and members of the number 61 post of the Veterans Foreign Wars aided in their search. Then, finally, on Sunday evening, following the abduction, Boyd Whaley was tossing and turning in his bed, thinking of the night that he extracted Donald Fern's car from the mud. Something about their interaction didn't sit right with him. What was he doing at that abandoned adobe house on that farm? He turned to his wife in bed and asked her when Alice, the girl on the news, was kidnapped. She looked right at him and said, You're thinking the same thing that I'm thinking. And so at 1.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, Boyd Whaley called the police and told them about his suspicions. He called Sheriff Tom Murphy, who sent deputies out to the abandoned Broad Acre Ranch. The ranch was known locally as the Fen Place, and its reputation preceded it. The site was at one point used by a radical offshoot group of Catholicism called the Penitents, who... uh, combined Catholic beliefs with vague interpretations of Native American customs, and their own special blend of insanity was thrown in there too. They displayed their piety through acts of self-flagellation and torture, and at one point they actually even crucified a member of their own church. Donald Fern's connection with the actual religious sect was dubious, and no connection was ever made between the sect and the abduction of Alice Porter, But Donald's own personal interest in sadism and torture would soon become very apparent. The police arrived at the abandoned adobe hovel and they began their search. They found ashes, clothing, and they opened up the door to the hovel and they saw what appeared to be a blood-stained floor inside of this house. As they looked through the grimy windows of the hovel to the outside, they noticed the opening of a cistern in the ground a little bit ways off in the distance. They walked out to it, and inside the cistern, they discovered the nude body of Alice Porter wedged ten feet down. Shortly after finding her in the cistern, they arrested Donald Fern at his home. His hair was unkempt, his face was unshaven, and he went without incident, staring calmly from behind his wireframe glasses. Donald Fern was, by all accounts, just a hard-working family man. He was quiet, but no one had really ever had much of an issue with him before. While remaining completely calm, he was questioned for half an hour and then conceded by requesting a cigarette and a glass of water before telling them the entire story. The story he would tell them would horrify Pueblo for many years to come. Donald told police officers that this was a crime of opportunity. He had never seen Alice Porter before. He just knew that he needed to find a young girl when he left the hospital that evening. As he drove up next to her walking home on that cool April evening, he stopped by her and leapt from the car while pointing a gun at her. She yelled out as if startled and then followed his instructions with a gun in her face. They quickly drove out of town and at one point even stopped so that Donald could fix a flat tire on the car. While he was fixing the flat, Alice made no attempt to run out of the car out of just sheer terror. She stayed in the car. He then drove Alice directly to the abandoned adobe hovel. 
There he built a fire inside the hut, and Alice knelt down on her knees before it. He sat behind her so he couldn't see her, and just stared at her back while he made small talk and hatched his plan for what to do with her next. He taped her mouth shut, and he taped her hands in front of her. In his car, Donald had long-stored implements to use in a torture one day. He went out and got a wire, and he came back in. He heated the wire in the fireplace and repeatedly burned Alice with it all over her body. He delighted in the muffled cries she made from behind her taped mouth. For several hours, he burned, cut, and stabbed her just enough to keep her alive, in between raping her. Donald Fern stated that he had always had a desire to torture and rape a young girl and that he couldn't resist torturing her. He carried implements of torture in his car to be on the ready for just such an occasion and that this was the first time he had acted on his fantasies. After his torture of Alice that went on for hours and police suspect upwards of six hours, he bashed her in between the eyes with a hammer and then shot her to make sure that she was dead. On April 27, 1942, the coroner confirmed Donald's story of what he had done to Alice. He confirmed that she had died from blunt force trauma between her eyes that fractured her skull. A bullet had entered her skull just above her left ear, and it stopped in the skin of the scalp on the right side of her skull. The coroner found multiple bruises, cuts, burns, and stabs over the entirety of her body. Fifteen burn marks were on her stomach, and ten were on her back and left hip. Shortly after the confession, a mob of townsfolk arrived at the sheriff's office. Donald Fern said he didn't fear the mob and deserved to pay for what he did. During this time, the police chief phoned Warden Rory Best, which for whatever reason is difficult for me to say, who has appeared in both the Joe Arity and Pearl O'Loughlin cases that I covered, who then sent a car to escort Donald Fern to a private cell at Canyon City. During this turmoil and outrage, Donald Fern's wife was being told the news as she lay in bed at the hospital holding their newborn baby. Donald Fern's wife and family were speechless and remained in a state of shock, requesting privacy to come to terms with this crime that he had committed. On the Tuesday after Donald Fern's confession, a six-man coroner's jury was convened to look over the evidence and hear Donald's testimony. On the morning after the murder, Donald had gone to visit a friend and asked for a meal and a ride into the city because he claimed his car was stuck in the mud. He had walked nearly 15 miles from the hovel where he just killed Alice Porter that night to find help getting his car out of the mud and to get a ride further into the city. After hearing from the coroner, it took the jury only 10 minutes to confirm that Alice had died at the hands of Donald Fern. While waiting for his trial, Donald Fern was kept in his own private cell on suicide watch as Warden Best knew the other inmates would probably kill him. He remained calm, occasionally smoking cigarettes and talking with guards outside of his cell. His family put out a lengthy statement to the press at this time, indicating that they wanted to see full justice carried out and that they had deep sympathy for the Porter family. 
At his trial, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity and was watched by psychologists at a mental asylum for 19 days before being declared sane. Seeing he had no other option, he then pled guilty. At the trial, various implements of torture, as well as the hammer and gun, were shown to the courtroom, which was largely full of women who arrived as spectators from all around the state. Donald's defense attorneys attempted to convey that he had a psychopathic level of sadism and that he was deranged as the result of his disorder, a claim that the jury did not seem to buy. The dull details of his sad life were also sort of mulled over. Donald was born in Nebraska, and his family moved to Rattlesnake Buttes in Pueblo County when he was three. He then spent an uneventful and boring childhood in Pueblo, where he graduated from Centennial High School in 1935. He told the jury that since he was young, he had uncontrolled impulses and a desire to inflict injury on others. In his teens, he was so consumed by these thoughts that he couldn't sleep and he suffered from horrible nightmares, he said. On the day of the murder, he had had breakfast with his mother and then he had gone to the hospital with his wife. When he was asked why he had a gun and a hammer, tape, wire, and wood in his car ready to go, he indicated that he kept them ready in the event that he just saw someone that he wanted to abduct. He was then asked if he knew he was sane, and he said that he imagined he was. A jury then had to decide whether he would get life imprisonment or death, and he was sentenced to death, which was a very swift ordeal from courtroom to gas chamber in 1942. During the reading of the verdict, he sat motionless and expressionless. He had 15 days to motion for a retrial, and no such motion came. He was offered time to state what he wanted to, and he merely stated that he believed he did something that he couldn't help. He was sentenced to die in the gas chamber, and then the judge said the only thing that made Donald Fern show any emotion. With tears welling in Donald's eyes, the judge told Donald that he would have 90 days to prepare the most important defense of his life. Quote, the defense you must make when your trembling soul stands naked and alone before the great white throne. His wife and mother visited him weekly, and they all broke down on each visit. On his execution day, Donald Fern paced his cell and he ate his last meal of steak and beer. On October 23rd, just a few minutes after 8 p.m., he walked to the gas chamber and was instructed to strip down to his boxers. He walked into the cold metal cylinder to one of the execution chairs and was strapped in before having a black mask put over his eyes. Included in the 38 witnesses to his death was Alice Porter's father and two uncles who all looked down and prayed. Either for Alice or Donald, it isn't known. Cyanide pellets were then dropped into a jar of acid and the fumes swirled around the chair. He was dead in three minutes. Alice's father watched the death of his daughter's torturer and murderer, likely wondering if her six-hour-long ordeal with the sadist was worth only a three-minute death. So thanks for listening, everybody. I hope that story wasn't too much for everyone. Um, 
And I didn't get too graphic with the description there, but I want to thank everyone who's listening and I want to thank new listeners. Just as a reminder, um, I'll do typically two episodes a month. In the middle of the month, I do my shorter historical cases or updates that have a little bit less information than can fill around an hour. And at the end of the month, I do my more heavily researched cases and it'll be a longer episode. Um, I have a lot of stuff coming up this year for you guys, so I hope you guys stay tuned. And if you guys want to reach me, you can reach me at coloredredpodcast at gmail.com. I also have an Instagram account, coloredredpodcast, where I'll be posting some images and some things that I think of during the day and all kinds of stuff um, where you could follow me for, for that on there. So until next time, guys, thank you.